Welcome to Impact, a podcast ministry of St. Andrew Lutheran Church in Middleton, Wisconsin. Impact features interviews with gifted Bible teachers that will help you better understand Scripture so it will have a greater impact on your life. The host of Impact is Mark Jenstead, the Staff Minister for Nurture at St. Andrew. Hi, everyone. Thank you for listening to Impact. It's a pleasure to share God's Word with you today. Today it's Romans chapter 7 with Pastor Dave Wenzel, a teacher of God's Word at Fox Valley Lutheran High School in Appleton, Wisconsin. So we'll talk with the Rev after we have a prayer. Dear Lord, we need your help for our faith to grow. Send us the Holy Spirit to increase our faith in your promises and to increase our understanding of your Word that we might be lights in our churches, our schools, our homes, and our communities. Amen. So I'm at Fox Valley Lutheran High School today, and my guest is Pastor Dave Wenzel. They call him the Rev around here. Welcome back to Impact. Thank you. We're back in Romans today. This is the third time we've been with Pastor Wenzel. We went chapter 8, and we went back to chapter 5. Now we're going to chapter 7. So after today, three down, 13 to go. No, not 8. We didn't do 8. We, we did, did a psalm, I think. Psalm one. Well, we also. Yeah. Oh, oh some, so. I think maybe Dave Scharf, good man, maybe jumped on Romans eight. That's right, and I, I have said, forgiven him for that. <laughs> well, I, someday we want your take on Romans eight, also. Uh, so as I got here today, I I, uh, I peeked into your office as I was setting up, and and I saw you uh, working on a sermon. When when are you going to preach that, and what's what's the sermon about? That's this weekend at Mount Olive here in Appleton, and my text is a great text, Hebrews twelve. I'm going to focus on the first three verses, the cloud of witnesses and fix your eyes on Jesus. And, and my theme, I think my theme, I better have settled on it by now, right? Uh, my theme is going to be run your race and then just talk about what we can expect on that race. Okay. And so uh, here's, a, here's a question. Um, excuse me for being ignorant about this, but so as you're writing your sermon here, it's Friday, you're delivering this on Sunday. So uh, I presume you'll want to have it polished by the end of today, and then and then you spend some time memorizing. Yes, yes. And for any of my fellow brothers in the ministry that are listening, they're saying shame on him. He doesn't have it polished by Friday. But uh, you do a lot of work beforehand. You get your thoughts together. I've got the sermon pretty much written. It's just that matter of polishing. And I think everybody is different, but for me, as I polish it and I go through it and I edit it, for me, that's part of the memorizing process, which is helpful. Okay. And uh, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, you'll be done. You'll say amen. Right. (laughs) Right. No, that's okay. It's okay if it goes 20, 25 minutes. It's God's word. Exactly. You never have too much. Get that message out. Okay. So Romans 7. Uh, I want to read a quote from you for you. First, before we get started, I put this on my phone, so just give me a second here. I, I, uh, I have a quote here on Romans from Martin Luther. I'm sure you're very familiar with this, Pastor. I'll share this for our listeners and then just get a thought from you. About Romans, Luther wrote, This letter is truly the most important piece in the New Testament. It is purest gospel. It is well worth the Christian's while not only to memorize it word for word, but also to occupy himself with it daily, as though it were the daily bread of the soul. It is impossible to read or to meditate on this letter too much or too well. The more one deals with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. Great, great quote. I have that in the Romans notes for our juniors. 
It's a semester course here at Fox Valley Lutheran, and it's one that I, I read to them, and they have it in front of them, and we talk about that, you know, that Luther said, every day read the book of Romans, which we don't do, but we go through the first eight chapters, and for 90 days of the school year, they are immersed in such a beautiful book just filled with God's promises. Okay, so we're in chapter 7 today. Can you give us an overview of where this chapter goes? Paul starts, if I can back up, Paul starts in Romans 1 with the premise he's going to prove everybody, not a premise, the truth, everybody is sinful. Very logical. I think in another life, Paul would have been a great, not just a tent maker, than an apostle, he would have been a great lawyer. So Paul's case is prove everybody is sinful. He attacks the Gentiles, proves the Gentiles are sinful. And the Jews that are reading this want to high five Paul. But then he says, but, but us Jews, you Jews, we too are sinful. Everybody is sinful. And then, then from there he goes to God's gift of righteousness. So he goes from law to gospel. And that through Jesus, I am holy in God's eyes. And then chapters 6, 7, and 8, and we're in chapter 7 today. Chapters 6, 7, and 8 talk about this righteousness I have from God grants me freedom, freedom from sin. And now in chapter 7, we're freedom from the law. And, and Paul will explain what he means by that. Okay. It starts with some, uh, fair to say, tricky verses. This analogy here with, uh, with marriage or the comparison between marriage and, and how it points to the freedom we have in Jesus. So take your best stab at this. I'm going to read these verses. Uh, so folks, this is Romans chapter 7. And as always, I encourage you to take the time to read this chapter for yourself if you're unable to have your Bible with you today. We'll cherry pick some of the verses today and I'll read many of them for you. Here's verses 1 through 4. Do, do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So then, if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. And so in these verses, uh, I'd like to hear you, Pastor, explain the marriage illustration and how it points to the freedom we have in Jesus. This is, this is tough, and, and since I usually am standing in front of teenagers, it's a struggle at times to, to get this analogy through to the students. And it's coming from somebody who loves to use analogies because I think it can clarify in our minds what, what we need to understand. So Paul is saying that when a man and woman are married— the law of marriage says that marriage, in God's eyes, that marriage is a lifelong union. And if the wife, if the woman would leave her husband, God says that's wrong. She's violating that law of marriage. However, if her husband dies, then she is free to remarry. Why? Because that law of marriage, of their marriage, no longer applies. So now what's the analogy? What's the application? We have the law of God that says this is what you need to do, perfect obedience and the punishment of death if you disobey. That's the law that we would be under except there's a death. Now, it's not my death. It was Jesus' death. But Jesus' death is credited to me, to you, and as a result, that punishment that Jesus accepted is also credited to us so, so the laws hold, if you will, the laws, the laws command over me has now been broken. So now I'm not 
married to that law, that, that, that law that says do this and this and this, but I'm married to Jesus, uh, united to Jesus in his death. All right. I think I got it. I want to pick up a phrase in verse 4. It's a phrase that's very familiar to us as Christians. It talks about bearing fruit. It says that uh, in order that we might bear fruit to God. So can you tell us uh, what does it mean to bear fruit as a child of God? That'd be part of my life of sanctification, right? So to bear fruit, you think of, of what Jesus said in, in John, uh, I am the vine, you are the branches, you remain in me and I remain in you. You will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And if you look at, if you look at that verse, Paul says that in order we may bear fruit to God, and then he goes on with verse 5, that before, before Paul became a Christian, the fruit that he bore bore fruit for death, resulted in death. The difference between the Christian and the non-Christian, unfortunately, isn't always obvious in outward behavior. But God sees the heart, and God sees that the good that I do is motivated by my love for God. For Paul, before he was a Christian, the fruit that he produced resulted in death because all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. He had no righteous acts in God's eyes. So the result of his behavior would be death. Okay, so only Christians can bear fruit. Anyone can do a, a, a good deed, but only a child of God through faith in Jesus, motivated by that love for Christ, can bear fruit. Correct. That civic righteousness for the unbeliever who obeys the speed limit and pays his taxes and is a good neighbor, that, that, those are good things. You, you, would never, you would never question somebody who hoped to change a tire on your car and say, well, wait a minute, before I shake your hand and say, thank you, sir, can I see your Christian membership card? You would thank them, but, but God in heaven does not view that as a good work. Does God use unbelievers to do good things for us? Yes, but the definition of a good work, of course, is what? Something I do out of love for God. The unbeliever has no love for God. So while it was good for somebody else, God doesn't view it as good. Okay, one more follow-up question on this. As, as you're giving that answer, I'm thinking this through. So as a Christian, uh, there are things that I do because I love Jesus, Pastor. But there are also times that I do things for other people that I may be not consciously saying, I'm doing this for Jesus. Is that, is it, am I bearing fruit then? That, that's a great point. Uh, when we're told all of our, our righteous acts are like filthy rags, no matter, no matter how good my intentions, I'll always, my, my actions will always be tainted by sin. Always. Maybe, maybe I'm in the mode again of, of a high school teacher because when I talk to the students about this, I think so often they, they look in the mirror of their own lives and they say, I don't know how many actual good works I do. I keep training rules because I want to play Friday night. Uh, I study because I need this GPA. I do this because I have no choice. I follow the speed limit because I can't lose more points off of my license. But if they are a child of God, and the vast majority of the students I stand in front of are God's precious children, they have faith. And because I have faith, the things that I do, God looks at those, those acts and sees them, sees them as perfect acts and as a pleasing aroma in his nostrils because of Jesus. 
Okay, and I guess before we move off this, I'll say this also. Uh, we don't have to worry, though, because, because Jesus is the reason that we're going to heaven, and Jesus is the one who did all the good deeds in my place. Exactly, exactly. And, and Jesus takes my less-than-perfect works and perfects them in God's eyes. Okay, verse 5, back to the text here. Paul writes, For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, he goes on to talk about, he's different now, because now he, he's a believer. He, he believes in Jesus. He's a Christian. So uh, that's not uncommon for Paul to speak like that, because uh, in the other epistles, we see how Paul talks about how He's talking to, to people that came to know Jesus later on in life. So he says, that's the way you used to be, but it's different now that you know Jesus and you're a Christian. So many of our listeners, you, me, and many of our listeners have been Christians since we were baptized as little babies. So how can we relate to these verses that say things like, when you were controlled by the sinful nature? That's a, that's a great question, and I think that's a challenge. I see... At FVL, we have students, we probably average two to three to four baptisms a year of students who have come to FVL with little or no knowledge of Jesus, and by the, the miracle of the means of grace, they come to faith while they are here. Their joy in that newfound, new, newly given faith, they, they wear their joy on their sleeve, and, and it can bother them because they look around and, and they, they, they see so many of us, faculty and students, who go through life taking our faith for granted because we've had it for so long. It's understandable. So what is, what is the antidote to that? I, 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 wonder, I wonder if it isn't going back 3,000 years to the book of Psalms and reading some of those penitential Psalms. And, and when, I, when I do that, and, and you think of, 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 say, Psalm 51 and King David saying, please cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean, uh, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. When I, I, I can't go back like the, the newly baptized South Korean student who looks at the first 16 years of his life and says, I didn't know Jesus and I had no hope. But I can go back to the sins of my youth. And I can go back to the sins of yesterday. And I can go to the sins of today and recognize that what God has done for me creates as much joy in my heart as it does in the, in the heart of Nelson Cho or Urasatha Uma Sengtan Kul from Thailand. That's the joy that is also, also mine. I, I think in a sense, and this is a, a good chapter to discuss this, the law does that for me. The law doesn't give me joy, but, but Luther loved to quote a proverb that says, hunger makes the best chef. Because when I am hungry, no matter what somebody puts in front of me, when I'm starving, I'll say, one of the best meals I've ever had. Well, the law does that, right? The law creates in me a hunger for the parched throat that I have, that I need that, that living water of the gospel. So go back to the law, look in the mirror of that law, cringe at what I see, and then find such comfort in the gospel. Okay, another way to look at this verse, and, and I promise then we'll move up, we'll move off this verse to verse six. I have I have a lot more questions here. But as I'm thinking about this, again, as, as I read verse five, Paul writes, When we were controlled by the sinful nature, past tense, when we were controlled by the sinful nature. And now as I sit here, I think, well, wait a minute. Uh, as I look at my life, thought word indeed, 
It seems like very often I am still today controlled by the sinful nature. It's going to be a great segue into the next section where Paul goes into that back and forth about knowing what he should do, but he doesn't. You, you, you are right. There are, there are far too many times when I am still in the moment controlled by my sinful nature, but yet I can lay my head on my pillow at night and know that I am a child of God, not because I confess my sins at 1030 at night and now God restored me, but because I live under the monsoon of God's grace and God is constantly showering me with that, that, that forgiveness. I remember that. You talked about that monsoon of God's grace last time. You got that from Professor Brug, if I remember right. I believe that's, that's true. Good man to credit. Yeah, okay. Uh, verse, uh, verse 6, Paul talks about serving in the new way of the Spirit. What does it mean to serve in the new way of the Spirit? And Spirit there is capital S. That, that would go back to my motivation. What, what is my motivation in, in serving God? It, it's not out of guilt, although my sinful nature feels guilty. It's not out of fear or obligation. So, so why, does, why does the teenager come home and, and shovel the sidewalk or the driveway without being told? Maybe it's out of fear of what dad will say if he doesn't because it was on his to-do list. Maybe it's out of obligation. That's my sinful nature says, I have to do this. The Holy Spirit, though, the Holy Spirit in me says, I get to do this because of what God has done for me. Verse 7, uh, Paul talks about, well, there's more rhetorical questions here at the beginning. And then he says, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. Why is Paul singling out here the sin of coveting? I, I can't get into Paul's head, but I wonder if it's not this, that, that coveting is not one of those sins that the average non-Christian would say, oh, I can't do that. Everybody knows you don't murder your spouse. Everybody knows you don't burn your neighbor's house down because you want his truck. But most people would say, for me to look at my neighbor's truck and say, hey, he's got a new truck, why don't I have one? To not just want that truck, but be bitter because God hasn't given me that truck, well, that's just, that's just human nature. But God says, no, that's coveting and that's a sin. I would compare this, I tell the students, it's really very similar to lust. I think many people would say, that's just attraction for somebody of the opposite sex. That's just my human nature. There's nothing wrong with lust as long as I don't act on that. Though God says, that's the type of coveting, wanting something God says I shouldn't have. And once God says, don't, it's the same as mom saying, don't touch the top of the hot stove. But the three-year-old says, mom said, don't. I think I want to do that. that. That's the rebellious side of me. I want to go to verse 10. And I'll read that verse. Paul writes, I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. How were the commandments intended to bring life? Well, you think of that, that first, the first law for Adam and Eve. Eat of every tree in the garden, but don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And, and, and what, was, what was the purpose of that? That was, I've heard it said that that was their church. That was their place of worship. That that was how they showed their, their love for God. And that was intended for their good. But 
Satan was able to use that and turn it into something that was was bad. The commandment was not bad. It's sin that is the problem. Uh, the law that was intended to bring life. If they would have obeyed that law, they would have had eternal life. That that's just a given. That was God's plan. That was not Satan's plan. And and man failed miserably, and we still fail miserably today. But but I think there's maybe just a secondary thought there too. The law that was intended to bring life isn't isn't it still true today? You have the fourth commandment, the one commandment with promise, right? Honor your father and mother, so it may go well with you. The students who do what God wants don't find themselves in the dean of students' office. I've never in all my years had a student sit across a desk from me and say to me, I can't believe I was dumb enough to do what God wanted. It's just the opposite. The number of times somebody has looked at me and said, I can't believe I was so stupid and did what God didn't want me to do. So obeying God brings blessings. And of course, in the big picture of salvation, Jesus' act of obedience is that he did that in our place. So in that sense, can we say the law still brings life because Jesus kept it in our place? You brought up Jesus' act of obedience. I think very often for, for many of us, that is the forgotten part of the gospel. I'm going to heaven because Jesus died for me. I find comfort in that. But I can find just as much comfort if, if I understand how to look at that. So the, the story of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, where do you find the gospel there? It, it's a lot more clear than just the fact that three years later he died on the cross for my sins. It's not just the law of, well, Jesus said no to Satan, so now I should say no. But it's because of Jesus' perfect obedience in saying no to Satan that I am forgiven for all the times I haven't said no to Satan. I want to jump ahead to verse 12. Uh, it says, So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Seems to be answering the question that was asked in verse 7, when Paul begins with this uh, section called Struggling with Sin. Verse 7 says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? And then verse 12 says, So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. So... God's law is not the problem. We are. We are. The, the law is good. It's sin that takes the law. It's my sinful nature that takes something that God meant only for good and then twists that to end with a result that is, that is not good. We, we struggle with this, right? The law is holy, righteous, and good. And I know that God's word is holy, righteous, and good, but, but, but all of God's commands are holy, righteous, and good. Very, very few teenagers come to school the first day at a school like FVL and open up their student handbook and look at the dress code and say, oh, holy, righteous, and good. And the fact is, society, governments don't always have good laws, they have bad laws. God's laws, though, from Genesis through Revelation, not one command God has given us is anything but holy, righteous, and good. Imagine how this world would be, Pastor, if everyone everywhere, all the time, obeyed God's perfect laws. That would, be, that would be that utopia, right? That we won't see this side of heaven. But that was the Garden of Eden. That was exactly the Garden of Eden. And that was, I have a hard time getting my head around that. Well, I, I guess my point is, 
people look at the law of God, like you talked about man-made laws, you look at a school handbook and say, oh boy, I don't want to keep these. But God's law is different. And when we keep God's law, it doesn't result in our being miserable. It's just the opposite. God's, God's laws are good in this sense that they are good for us. And when we keep them, life is better. Does that make sense? No, that, that, that makes perfect sense. And, and what Satan does is, for the average Christian, I look at the behavior of many others and I say, if only they would do what God says, and if they would only listen to a police officer, and if they would only obey the laws, then they wouldn't have all of this misery. But I pick and choose, right? I, I ignore the fact that God also has laws that tells me things that I don't want to focus on that. So I pick and choose, but I find myself miserable and overridden with guilt and lying awake at night because I haven't done what God said I should do either. And then, of course, the solution is Jesus. Back to the text, verse 13. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. Uh, very wordy there, Paul, <laughs> as, as, as we try to understand that. Is this saying that through the law, God has us right where he needs us to be, right where he wants us to be, which is ready for the gospel? Yes. The law does not save, but the law creates in me again that hunger, that thirst for the, the gospel. Uh, a CT scan that detects cancer doesn't bring good news, but what it does do is reveal the seriousness of the disease and then points you, or somebody will point you to a solution, a desire for a cure. That's what the law does. It doesn't reveal anything good in me, but what it does do is give me an awareness of my desperate, desperate need for a cure that I cannot achieve on my own. Yeah, I guess what it says here, looking at the text here, just to elaborate a little bit, it says it, and that's the law, it produces death in me. And so one way to look at, uh, I guess, the law of God, Pastor, is that it leaves us, leaves us helpless and it leaves us hopeless. We have to find something outside of ourselves because it's produced death. And that's Jesus, right? Let's go on, verses 14 through 20. Uh, I'm not going to read all these verses, but it, these are the verses, folks, where Paul is talking about how uh, he seems, he seems, can I say he seems frustrated? Uh, he's, he's talking about the sin that he does. It's not what he wants to do. He wants to do good, but he finds himself doing what he doesn't want to do. And the good that he wants to do, he finds himself, he's not doing that. So uh, who can't relate to these words, right? But some pastor might say that Paul here is just making an excuse for sin. He can't help it. Paul, Paul is not offering an excuse or making an excuse. He is offering from now until Jesus returns for, for all people. Uh, centuries of Christians who have read this, he's offering an explanation. Uh, and he's, you're, you're right, he's showing frustration, exasperation with himself. I know exactly what I'm supposed to do, then why can't I do that? And so often, isn't that the life of, of you and of me? And, and I think of, of, of students who at the end of the day say, again, again, that happened. How could that have happened? Why did I do that? And whatever age we're at and whatever our pet sin might be, 
that we do really well for a day or two or a week or four, and then we're right back into that sin again. Paul is saying, that's not what I want to do, but the good I want to do, it doesn't happen. Yeah, the desire to do what is good. I have this desire to do what is good. Does God give any credit for a desire to do what is good? Not credit, of course, as, 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 as a, a ticket for my salvation, but does God, God helps me have a desire to do the right thing. I don't think, though, I would say that God credits me with that, but he wants me to have a desire to say no to sin. And he enables me to say no to sin. I look at this whole section, and, and it's discouraging and depressing, but it's, it's, it's reality. And it's a good reminder, n none of us, no matter how faithful we think we are, in following God's laws, in doing what God wants, in being in God's word or in God's house of worship. I should never be shocked by my continued love affair with sin that I just can't shake. It's always going to be there. Someone once said, becoming a Christian is easy. Being a Christian is hard. I think of that when I look at these verses in Romans 7. How about verse 22? Paul writes, for in my inner being, I delight in God's law. That sounds like it will, what it will be like to have a fully restored image of God, to delight in God's law. Uh, with a sinful nature, I don't always delight in God's law, but my new image does. And one day, that's, that's all that will be there. That'll be such a wonderful part of heaven, right? that we get to heaven and there's no more struggle, no more struggle with, with sin. And it's just so difficult for us to comprehend that. But we can also experience a taste of that on this side of heaven, that the more I'm immersed in God's word and the more I recognize the blessings that God has for me as I meditate on his law day and night, and I, I, I have that daily walk with God, that is where the Christian finds joy, is not in those external things, but in knowing this is what God wants for me, and, and it's God who is going to bless this. Can I go back to verse 21? I've got a question for you here, Rev. So I didn't give Pastor Wenzel, I'm, I'm, I'm not being irreverent by calling Pastor Wenzel Rev because they've been calling him Rev here for a long time, right? Correct. Okay. I was never cool enough to have a nickname when I was in high school, and, and now I got one and it's stuck. Yeah, it's a good nickname. Uh, so verse 21 says, So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. So here's the question, Pastor. What's stronger, my sinful nature or my new life that I have in Jesus? That, that's, a, that's a great question, and that's one I pose to the students at the end of chapter 7 when we're done. And we summarize it, and I say, what are the two sides of the battle that Paul's describing? And they understand that, my, my sinful nature, my new man, uh, my old Adam, whatever term they would use. And I'll ask them, so which is stronger? And what I found interesting is that in, in my years of teaching high school students, I've also had the privilege and the opportunity to teach some adult Bible classes on Romans and, and the percentage of students is a little bit higher 
than a percentage of adults who will say, which is stronger? Well, it's, it's obviously it's my sinful nature. I think it's because the average teenager has his sins in front of them on a daily basis and have so many people, parents, coaches, teachers, uh, the police officer that pulls them over saying, nope, 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 nope. And they say, but I'm always struggling. It must be my sinful nature is stronger. The, the, the reality is that as a child of God, my new man is stronger than my sinful nature because God stands behind my new man. God is my ally and because of God standing behind my new man, I may lose some battles, but that final, the, the war, the war has been won by Jesus. So what you're saying is, if I'm alone, my sinful nature is stronger, but as a child of God, I'm never alone. Never, never alone. And, and you get to Romans 8 at the end of that. It's just beautiful verses of comfort in that chapter. And right at the end, nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. Nothing. It doesn't say nothing except if you lost a battle with Satan today. Uh, nothing except pornography. Nothing except adultery. Nothing except gossip or greed or a lack of contentment. No. Paul says nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Okay, so Jesus is right there with me. He gives me the strength to fight and, and many times overcome temptation. And when I fall, he's there to give me grace and forgiveness. I fall into the arms of Jesus and he picks me back up and restores me. Okay, this, uh, I think, the climax of the chapter, verse 24. So Paul is, is, is um, talking about how he just can't stay away from sin. He wants to stay away from sin, but he finds himself sinning again and again and again. And again, who can't relate to that? And then he says, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. What a wretched man I am. Not, not a word that we use a lot today to describe things, maybe a wretched situation, but what a wretched man I am just flies in the face of, of American humanism and the idea that, that we're all basically good. No, I, I am a wretched man. Paul understood that. I need to understand that. All of us need to understand that. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Uh, Luther more than once talked about his body being a sack of maggots, uh, a modern sack. And very, very, very gross description, right? Very earthy. But of course, that was Luther. And, and even more so in Luther's day, when you were face to face with death on such a regular basis during that period of time. And he knew what would happen. And, and, and he said, that is why. That is why when somebody dies, we bury them in a hurry or burn the body because otherwise it's going to be worms and maggots. Who will rescue me from that body of death? Well, not me, not a doctor, not some how-to book, not some health plan, but, but Jesus. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Okay, Pastor, I guess we've reached the end. Final thought here on Romans 7. Just, just a, what a great way to end, I think. Better than a, a Dave Wenzel quote would be a Martin Luther quote. Luther said, I'm surely baptized in Christ and believe that he is my Savior and the way by which I will come to heaven. Therefore, though I do not know how long I will be here, or when I will put off this maggot sack, yet I know that I will live eternally with him. I know full well where I will go and be, for it's been assured to me by baptism, by absolution, and in the sacrament. What, what, what great comfort that Luther found in the words of Scripture, that no matter 
how miserable a sinner he was that in God's eyes, he had Jesus' robe of righteousness. Okay, very good, Pastor Wenzel. Thank you for your time today. Romans chapter 7, let's do this again. We still have a lot of chapters to choose from. I'll come back here with my microphone sometime during the school year and we'll, we'll do more Romans. It would be a privilege and a blessing. And by the way, uh, I had a lot of nicknames in high school, so does that mean I was really cool? You had to be. You were like the epitome of coolness. <laughs> I think I had like five nicknames. Okay, thank you. Uh, blessings on your school year here at Fox Valley Lutheran. Thank you. Here's another Luther quote. Lord, keep us steadfast in your word. Folks, keep your Bible open. And remember, Jesus is always with you. God bless. Thank you for listening to Impact, a podcast ministry of St. Andrew Lutheran Church in Middleton, Wisconsin. Our email address is impact at st-andrew-online.org. Please tell your friends and family about Impact and pray for this ministry. Impact is new every Monday and all past episodes are available. The better you understand scripture, the greater impact it will have on your life.